The Great Pluto Debate. You're listening to Are We There Yet? The radio show exploring space exploration. Hi, I'm Brendan Byrne. Back in 2006, a science organization changed the classification of planet, sparking a debate in both the astronomical community and pop culture at large. More than 15 years later, a new paper is reigniting that debate. The International Astronomical Union is responsible for classifying and naming celestial bodies, and by changing the definition of planet back in 2006, the organization essentially downgraded Pluto from planet to dwarf planet. Florida Space Institute planetary scientist Philip Metzger co-authored a new paper taking a fresh look at the decision, and he's urging the IAU to reconsider. The story of the IAU's decision reads like a political thriller and dates back more than 100 years of planetary science history. Metzger joins the show to talk about the secrecy, intrigue, and historical context of Pluto's planethood and why the IAU's decision matters to science. That's ahead on Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's space station. So how does an object qualify as a planet? According to the IAU, it must meet three criteria. It needs to orbit the sun. It needs to have enough gravity to pull itself into a round shape. And finally, it must have enough gravity to push or pull objects in its orbit. Pluto doesn't meet that last criteria. Therefore, it's a dwarf planet. That definition and the process by which the IAU came to that definition is flawed, says Florida Space Institute planetary scientist Dr. Philip Metzger. He's the co-author of a new paper making that argument, and he's here now to bring us up to speed on the issue. Dr. Metzger, thanks for joining us. Glad to be here. So we've had you on a few years ago, Dr. Metzger, talking about this very issue. Bring us up to speed. Why isn't Pluto considered a planet? Well, <laughs> I think a lot of us do consider it a planet, but the reason the um, International Astronomical Union voted to say that it's not a planet is a rather convoluted tale. We recently did some research that uncovered part of the story, which we had never realized before. But to, to just answer your, your question in brief, uh, they voted in 2006 to say it's not a planet because they were discovering a lot of other Kuiper Belt objects out in the outer part of the solar system and they had stumbled upon one that was approximately the same size as Pluto, which raised the question, should it be a planet too? And that created a, a crisis that should have never been a crisis, leading to this uh, rushed vote and the definition that they have today. It's almost like a spy tale, right? I mean, there's this, you know, or, or a political thriller, right? There's this rushed vote and, and conversations in secret. And, and this was a very, and still is, a very contentious issue in the planetary science community. Tell us about the reaction to that decision and, and where planetary scientists like yourself have kind of found themselves on, on either side of the issue. Yeah, well... Most, I would just, just guessing, I would say most of the people I know think that the definition is not a good definition for various reasons. Most people are probably just tired of it. You know, they're just, it's a bad definition, it's dumb, and they just want to ignore it and just get on with doing good science. But some of us, like myself, have been arguing that we shouldn't just let it go. It really does matter because taxonomy is a central part of science. And so we don't want to politicize it. We don't want to 
make something out of it that, that it doesn't need to be. You know, we're not trying to throw stones at people, but we're, we're trying to say, hey, this is, this is science, and we do want to get this right. Other branches of science have wrestled with what is a concept, you know, what is a mammal, what is a fish, and what is a planet actually is an important question. It, it gets into the effectiveness of doing science. So I think we need to sort it out. I think we do need to be a little patient here and, and work through it. But like you said, there, there is sort of this spy thriller tale. We uncovered some aspects of the story that were completely unexpected and fascinating, in my opinion. I, I do want to talk about that, but let's give it a little more context here and go back 15 years to that, uh, or, or more than 15 years ago, to that IU vote to change the classification of it. What was the IAU's justification in reclassifying Pluto, and why do planetary scientists like yourself think that that's incorrect? Like I said, there was this, this uh, discovery of a body that is now called Eris that is a little bit smaller in diameter than Pluto, but just about the same size and maybe a little more massive than Pluto, possibly. Though it's, it's close, right? But meanwhile, um, there had already developed a split between astronomers who are planetary scientists and ones who are not. The planetary scientists who do geoscience use a more inclusive concept of a planet than the astronomers had been using in recent decades. So we consider the moon to be a planet. We consider Titan, the largest moon of Saturn, to be a planet. And there are good reasons for this. We consider Triton, the moon of Neptune, to be a planet. And it used to be a primary planet before it got captured and became a satellite. You know, So why would we say it's not a planet just because random events happened to get it captured into a little gravity well? You know, Did it stop being what it was? Um, but there's good reasons for this. And so this cultural split was already there. And, um, but meanwhile, the, the astronomers had been trying to justify their concept of a planet by putting some icing on that cake to try to make it, to dress it up, put some math on it. And there was a good bit of pride in the dynamical community. So when this issue came up, because of the culture split, they couldn't get an easy answer. They, um, the, the first committee tried to come up with a definition and they couldn't do it. They, they failed to dig down to what the real issues were. And um, in my opinion, I think they, they didn't go deep enough, but they didn't have enough time to go deep. And so it failed and they put together a second committee and this is where they made a big mistake. The IAU told their committee to work in secret and keep what they were doing under wraps. And there's actually a rule in the bylaws, the statutes of the International Astronomical Union that requires it to put everything on the agenda about six months before the meeting. And four months before the meeting, they have to circulate it globally and put it on the website to give everybody four months of time to study the issue. And, and the statutes say that the reason why is to protect consensus. But they knew there was no consensus and they made the choice to keep it a secret. So they didn't advertise it. They broke their own bylaws and then on the second day of the meeting, they announced to the, the attendees, guess what? We're going to vote on the definition of a planet. And, and they rolled out the, the definition that the second committee had put together. And so everybody was shocked. The dynamicists were unhappy because it 
didn't line up with what their half of the community thought that a planet should be. And so it created a big uproar. And within about two or three days, they, they created a new definition. And this was a violation of the bylaws as well um, to just create a definition on the fly with no advertising four months ahead and then vote on it. And so nobody had a chance to get to the meeting to oppose it. Nobody had a chance to put arguments together. And so it created a big split, a big controversy, and it stinks really bad. If you're doing something in private like that or or not being transparent, it, it would seem that you would think that there's going to be some sort of critical reaction to, to what you're going to do or there's going to be some controversy, right? It, it seems like the IAU knew that this was going to ruffle some feathers. What was the motivation in the first place to even reclassify it if they knew that it was going to be such a contentious and controversial decision? Our new research has, has hopefully drilled down enough to start to answer that. So I'm going to give you the first answer, and then I'm going to back it up a little farther to tell you what's behind that, okay? okay. So the first answer is, they thought that it was necessary to classify Eris, what we now call Eris, with, is it a planet or not, before they would know how they could name it. Because they had a committee, an organization, that names small bodies, like comets and asteroids, and all the small Kuiper Belt objects. The group is called the Minor Planet Center, you know, minor planets. And in the modern view, we consider a minor planet to be a non-planet. In fact, we're, we discourage even using the term minor planet because a minor planet is not a planet. We all agree on that. But because it was the Minor Planet Center, they didn't think they should be allowed to name a planet if it's a real planet, you know, a major planet. And so they thought we need to classify the object. Is it a planet or not before we can name it? But we got to name it. It's a big embarrassment if we can't name it. So because their bureaucratic process put taxonomy in line with naming, it, it intermingled a scientific process with an arbitrary societal cultural process. So you're, you're saying this, this whole controversy started because one particular group wanted to be able to name something. Well, they, they needed to figure out who gets to name it. And, and also there's some fame involved. You know, if you discover a planet, does that put you on the same par with Herschel who discovered Uranus, you know? So is, do we give the same level of fame to the people that discovers these large Kuiper Belt objects if they're planets? And so, you know, it's, there's this culture in astronomy of, of how you name things. And unfortunately they didn't disentangle it from the science, right? So now, so we drilled down into this to try to figure out how did this ever come about? Why does astronomy intermingle taxonomy with naming stuff? The other branches of science were careful to separate that. Like in biology, they actually tell you in their taxonomical code, in the preamble, it says we've invented this process in order to separate naming from taxonomy because taxonomy should never be voted on. Taxonomy should never be subject to constraint or dictating by an organization because it's science and you don't dictate science. Well, the problem goes back to the 1800s. In the 1800s is when the public started to develop a different idea of a planet than what scientists had. And it's not a scientifically functional concept. But 
then later in the 1920s, and I, I don't know if I'm getting ahead of the interview here by bringing this up yet, but um, in the 1920s, there was a period of neglect in astronomy where we failed to teach what had come down to us from Galileo, which was a useful, functional concept of a planet. And the astronomers fell into using the one that came from culture of the 1800s, which really ultimately came from astrology, not from science. And that concept of a planet is not functional. You can't actually use it in doing science. But it was what everybody thought had come from Galileo now. You know, we, we falsely told people, this is what Galileo gave us. And because it was not functional, it created this false idea that taxonomy and astronomy has never been functional. And if it's never been functional, then it's not part of science. It's just like naming. And so I think ultimately that's where it came from. There was a failure to recognize the importance of classifying objects into categories that align with scientific theory. Our conversation with Florida Space Institute planetary scientist Dr. Philip Metzger on the latest calls to re-examine Pluto's planetary status continues after a break. Are We There Yet? is back in a minute. You're listening to Are We There Yet? here on WMFE, America's space station. I'm Brendan Byrne. The question, is Pluto a planet? According to the international organization responsible for naming and classifying celestial bodies, no. But a new paper co-authored by Florida Space Institute planetary scientist Dr. Philip Metzger is recharging the debate and making the case for Pluto's planethood. Before the break, Dr. Metzger was telling us that a working definition of the planet from the 19th century was incorrect, but the IAU used it anyways when determining the new definition of planet. Our conversation with Dr. Metzger continues. You said in the 1800s, they got it wrong. It still holds influence today. Is there kind of a gold standard, a gold chapter in astronomical history that we should look back to, to, to try to emulate? You, you mentioned the days of Galileo. Is, is that kind of where we should be going back to? Well, what we showed in our paper is that scientists naturally default to doing good taxonomy. Because I think it's hardwired in the human brain. We create categories of objects that we want to talk about because we need them. And if a category is not useful, we don't use it or we, or we evolve it to make it useful. So if you look to the people that are actually doing planetary science, what are the categories that they use? Okay. And throughout, we, now we've done this. We've spent years and years researching the literature to write this paper. And what we found is that from Galileo until the 1920s, astronomers had a good concept of a planet that was functional. Then there was a funny period of about 40 years, from 1920 to 1960, when there was a big, deep dip in the amount of planetary science that was being published. We've called that the Great Depression of Planetary Science. And it was during that period that they failed to teach the next generation what had come down to us from Galileo. And there's a lot more to this that we could explain why it happened. But the end result is that we forgot what a planet is. And we defaulted to what the public was teaching in nursery school, which had ultimately come not from science, not from Galileo. It had come from geocentrism. And um, elements of geocentrism were smuggled in to heliocentrism by the public because they didn't want to give it up. They didn't want to give up these 
non-scientific aspects of what a planet is from geocentrism. And so in the 1920s to 1960s, astronomers weren't really doing much planetary science and they defaulted back to this cultural idea of a planet. Well, as soon as planetary scientists started sending missions to other planets and doing real science of planets again, we immediately started using the concept from Galileo again. Okay, so the scientists who are doing planetary geoscience naturally went back to it. But the other astronomers who are doing cosmology and galactic astronomy, things that are not planets, they thought that this story that they heard from childhood had come all the way from Galileo and they thought that was what a planet is. And so that's what created the split. It was people actually doing planetary science using a functional concept versus the gatekeepers, you know, writing the textbooks about astronomy who hadn't done the hard research to find out what the true story is. They thought a planet was something else. And why was it like that in those 40 years? You kind of teased that you told me you were going to... Yeah, so that's a, that's a really good question. We don't have the total answer to it. We studied the bibliometrics. We looked at how many papers were written on the topic of astronomy every year, and we plotted it. And it's an exponential growth, except for a period... Now, this is a little bit longer than the 40 years I'm talking about, but from about 1894 until 1960, astronomy was flat. There was no growth. But then, starting in 1960, it began a dramatic exponential growth again. Okay, so there was this weird flat period for astronomy. It's, it's utterly unique. It didn't happen anywhere else in, in astronomical history because all prior history and all subsequent history was exponential growth, okay? But during that period, from 1894 to 1960, starting at about 1920, it, the planets, the bibliometrics for planets and satellites actually started to decline quite steeply. So there was a 66% loss, you know, a two-thirds reduction in the amount of scientific productivity in the study of satellites. And it was during that deep dip that astronomers stopped considering satellites to be planets. So um, now you asked what caused it, and we don't know. We ultimately don't know why there is this flat period of 66 years in astronomy and why there was a dip of about 40 years in planets. Utterly unprecedented and Remarkable, though. So, so you might think, well, what about World War I, World War II, and the Great Depression? Well, the, the flat period of astronomy started before that. Um, so what else was going on in science? Well, that was the era, the 1890s, uh, that historians have argued that science was in a funk where they thought everything had been solved and all they had to do was add the extra decimal places. However, as we were researching this, we did find other historians arguing that that's not exactly true. There was a lot of really good science still going on. So we don't know what caused the flat period. We think that there's a good research project for historians. We think we've pointed out a good problem for historians to study. It's fascinating. It's, it's so fascinating. And so, so you're arguing that this, this dip in scientific research, or especially in planetary sciences, kind of allowed this incorrect or inaccurate definition of planet to flourish uh, through through 
the scientific community, and then that in turn influenced what was happening at the IAU. Um, am I correct in, in that assumption? Yeah, that's a, a, a good short summary. I think the human brain is very is wired to very efficiently create useful, pragmatic concepts like planet. And so because this community had been split into the planetary and the non-planetary, and because we had defaulted to a cultural concept during a period that we weren't doing much planetary science, that is ultimately what created the split that we, we saw come, come out in 2006. We've had you on the show to talk about this before, but refresh our listeners as, as a planetary scientist and, you know, why, what is the definition of planet and why should Pluto be considered? Well, just for full disclosure, I have to say that we're not all in agreement on this, you know, and, and I think that's fine. I think that it's important for scientists to disagree over these concepts because evolving the concepts is part of science. And we're supposed to be arguing on these things as we're developing them and evolving them. But um, the, the, the planetary scientists that I have been working with on this topic, we generally believe that a planet should be um, defined as an object that has active, complex, emergent geology. And a good way to boil that down, a good proxy for that is to say it's got to be large enough that it's rounded by its own gravity. Because apparently that's about the point where the great flourishing of emergent complexity seems to occur. If you have small bodies accreting, they just stay small lumpy rocks. They might get hot and melt and there could be some active geology for a period of time, but it's very limited unless the body gets large enough that it can actually pull itself into a rounded shape and then you have a more sustained period of activity, including differentiation into a core, mantle and crust, mantle plumes, formation of additional minerals, new, you know, new minerals coming out of the melt and crystallizing. Then you start to have crustal features like mountains and volcanism. You can have chemistry uh, have volatiles uh, coming out from the from the molten mantle you can have oceans forming and atmospheres evolving from the planet and then you start to have chemical reprocessing in the liquids and in the on the surface materials and you can have biochemistry and then we know that on at least one planet we've had life emerge and of course planetary science is all about the search for life on other planets including the moons and including the dwarf planets. You know, we don't limit it by those that can clear their orbits. All these very planet-like, you know, essentially planet-like aspects of planethood don't really care that much if they clear their orbit. But so you've got possibly the emergence of life and then possibly civilizations, you know, intelligent life. And so all of this complex of emergent physics is, is a remarkable feature of the cosmos. The fact that this can happen in the cosmos is amazing, but it can only happen, as far as we know, on a body of intermediate size, larger than an asteroid, smaller than a star. If it gets so large that nuclear fusion begins, 
then you have this great flux of energy coming out of the planet, which makes all of the chemistry impossible. You know, it's too much energy to maintain molecular bonds, and so you don't get crystallization of minerals. You don't get organic chemistry with all the complexity necessary to form life. And so it's that intermediate size. Um, in our research, we've found out that that's actually what Galileo saw and what Galileo defined as a planet. He saw mountains on the moon. He said, hey, this is like Earth. This is another Earth. And immediately, all of his contemporaries, including Kepler and all through the 1600s, um, there, there were... Um, De Fontenelle was a member of the French Royal Academy who started speculating about planets all throughout the cosmos having civilizations. And um, Huygens, who found Titan, was a firm believer that all the planets must have civilizations and life, you know, even in the 1600s. This was immediately what we came to understand about planets. This was the significance of a planet. And um, that has always been the significance of a planet, except for that little short 40-year period of neglect. And that little short 40-year period, almost inconsequential, um, a blip in history, created the rift that resulted in this vote in 2006. And, and finally, Dr. Metzger, do you think that this will ever change? Will this be resolved? Will the IAU come back and say, we're going to reconsider this definition? And, and what would the consequences be of that? I think it's possible. Um, I, I'm not actually really hopeful for that, simply because we humans are pretty bad at reasoning. And we have this very fragile process, the scientific process, and it functions, but it functions with a lot of drama and a lot of false leads and dead ends. You know, I don't think humans are very good at reasoning. I think that when we do the scientific process correctly, then we can counteract a lot of our biases and we amazingly make progress, right? But when you throw roadblocks in the path, it disrupts it and it takes a while for those disruptions to work out and to get back on track again. And so I think it might take a good 40 years for a lot of people to retire um, a lot of people who've baked in their biases into their neural networks in their brains, they're going to have to retire and get out of the way before younger people come in and that bias washes out of the system. So I'm afraid that might have to happen. On the other hand, I think that planetary scientists are going to keep on doing good planetary science. As we documented in our paper, we are ignoring the IAU's definition. We are using a functional concept of a planet um, anyways. And um, so I think that a combination of ignoring it and um, eventually fixing it is, is the way we're going to go forward. Dr. Philip Metzger is a planetary scientist. Dr. Metzger, thank you so much for joining us. It was my pleasure, Brandon. That's going to do it for this week's show. Be sure to subscribe to the show's podcast feed. Do that on NPR One, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Or you can visit WMFE.org slash yet. Are We There Yet is a production of WMFE, America's Space Station. Editorial guidance this week from LaToya Dennis. Production assistance this week from our newest intern, Beatrice Oliveira. Beatrice, welcome to the team. Support for Are We There Yet comes from our listeners. Until next week, I'm Brendan Byrne. Thanks for listening.